0: There's zero evidence that a vegan diet is is promotive of brain health.
1: Make a vegetable stock. Celebrate that vegetable plant by using every part of the
2: plant. I love egg freezing. It's the best form of family planning that you can ever have in your life.
3: The women today need more respect.
4: What men need more of is to feel successful.
5: Humans are wired to
4: play throughout their entire life. Puzzles could save the world if we give them to red states and the blue
7: Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I hope everybody had the most sparkling of holidays, the most magical of New Year's, and I hope your 2023 is off to a beautiful start. Before we start off this year's lineup for the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, which is epic, by the way, we have our part two best of episode for 2022. I think I'm really going to love doing this every year. It gives me a chance to just reflect on all of the incredible conversations and guests that I got to meet, look at the highlights, relearn some of the things I learned. For you guys, it's a great chance to revisit some of my favorite moments And also see some guests that you might have missed. So I really hope that you guys are enjoying this to get the specific episode numbers for each guest, you can go to these show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com 2022 part two. Those show notes will also have a complete transcript. So definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life comment, something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. You can comment, for example, who your favorite guest was from last year, and then also- also check on my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serrapeptase bandwagon yet? I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MDLogic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys. If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app food sense guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts, and friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon, so you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. on a mission to change this every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin. So you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the golden globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous part two to the best of episodes for 2022 on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. Okay, friends, what better way to start off our best of episode part two than with one of the most inspiring, incredible, energetic, life-changing conversations I have ever had Everybody needs to hear Farmer Lee Jones. He is doing incredible things for bringing back our attention to growing food for flavor and as a consequence for nutrients. He's sort of like Wim Hof level for his enthusiasm. His book, The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes is honestly the most gorgeous book I have ever received. Friends, if you need gifts for people and they're into food, get this book. It is mind-blowing. You will learn so much about vegetables and produce and flavor, and it has so many cool recipes. Definitely check it out. After interviewing him, I honestly just wanted to change the world. I was smiling so much during this interview. Farmer Lee Jones is so cool. He was even the answer to a Jeopardy question. That's when you know you're pretty cool. So without further ado, please enjoy this excerpt from my conversation with Farmer Lee
1: Jones interesting carrots you know we for thousands of years we only ate the top of the carrot now we only eat the bottom the top is full of nutrient you can actually exchange the carrot top you know if you're doing uh anything with a salad or uh if you're making uh, the basil uh, i can't think of the word right now uh help me out with basil like for the salad no not for a salad when you it's just it's right there it's a so simple of a dish that we make we use a basil Oh well, I can't think of it. Like a pesto? Yeah, that, that's I. I don't know why. I had a brain freeze right at that moment. But yeah, you could with a basil pesto. You can actually exchange the carrot top out, run it through the blender, and you can make an amazing pesto with the carrot top. We don't have to waste any of this. And we talk about that in the book. Even the trimmings make a vegetable stock. It's amazing. We can extract everything, and again, celebrate that vegetable plant by using every part of the plant. I
7: remember um, I remember one time I was going to the grocery store, and I specifically wanted the leaves on the top of the beets. And I was trying to find them, and they had cut all the leaves off. And so I went up to the guy, and I was like, where do I get the beets with the leaves? And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I was like, I just want – because <laughs> I had bought some beets before, and I had tasted the leaves, and it was so good. It was, like, salty. So, yeah, that was <laughs> – I was like, oh, maybe I'm crazy.
1: <laughs> no, you're not. I'm really glad you brought that up because I don't know whether any of the listeners have been, are in tune enough with their bodies. And I'm sure some of them are nodding their heads, yes. But I think that if we listen to our body, it craves certain minerals. And there are there actually are more nutrients in the top than in the bottom of the beat. And so I love that you were seeking those out. And it could have been that you were so in tune with listening to your body that it was telling you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's times when my body says, I need kale. I need Swiss chard. I need beets.
7: I literally felt like my body said, I don't know if I tasted them before, but my body was like, I need beet greens. And so I went to the store to buy them. <laughs> you were not there.
1: I, I think that that's really good that you were, you were there craving that. Follow those. I would encourage listeners to to follow those cravings because your body's telling you something. Again, I read this in National Geographic and it really it always stuck with me, but there were women and they were eating soil and it seemed so abstract to me at the time, but you know, as we've done more deep dives into the mineral deficiencies that we're finding in vegetable, their bodies were craving minerals and instinctively they knew that those minerals were in the soil. And they were trying to fulfill something within their deficiency of their body by eating the soil. Now, I can guarantee you the soil didn't taste good, but they're, they were listening to their body. And I really encourage listeners to really be in tuned with yourself. And when it tells you you need beet tops, when you need kale, to listen to it and follow that advice that your body's telling you. Instinctively, it'll tell you what you need in many cases.
7: Our next guest is one of those guests where I brought him on for his newest book and was so fascinated and blown away by it that I immediately read all of his other books as well in preparation. Mark Schatzker is the author of The Dorito Effect, The End of Craving, and Steak. And to be honest, when I started reading The End of Craving, I didn't think I was going to learn that much new in it, which is very pretentious of me, but I just thought it was going to be about the issues with the processed food industry. Oh my goodness, the stuff he talks about and how things are affecting our weight, and it's not what you think. It's things like, our vitamins actually making us fat? And is making things less calories with artificial sweeteners also making us fat by stopping our metabolism? There's this whole theory of nutritive confusion. It is mind-blowing stuff. Read his books, listen to this interview, and here is just a brief glimpse of one of the things that we talked about. Is it just that the vitamins are the switch that makes it possible to live on processed foods and then you gain the weight from the processed foods? Or does it also linearly track where if you add more vitamins, do you get fatter?
8: It's a really good question because people, you know, some people use niacin as a heart medication. They'll get like a super, super big dose. so, So shouldn't those people become super, super fat? I think this is complex this is a story about the food that you're exposed to from a very young age. And it's a piece of the pie. I think if you want an obesogenic diet, you need a lot of calories. You also need the vitamins. I mean, there are obese people in Italy. It's much, much rarer. It's very rare to have things like extreme obesity, just because I think it's harder to pull off. You've got to work a lot harder to get the nutrients in your body, whereas here... Our food is is just more like that rocket fuel feed by its very nature. The question is, does adding, does this enrichment or fortification, is it enough on its own? It, it, it might be in part. like like When they added that to the pig diet, those pigs got big and fatter quickly, more quickly. But at the same time, I think there's all sorts of other things we're also doing. Things like mismatch, things like adding flavorings, uh, if that makes sense.
7: Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd have to look at it again, but I, I think in one of the pig studies... I think it showed that the more vitamins they added, the fatter they got.
8: Well, what was really interesting was there was a study I looked at where they they looked at pigs in confinement, and they looked at pigs on pasture. And they had two groups of pigs on pasture. One getting what's called a mixed ration, where the the food and the vitamins are all mixed together. And one where there was like like the corn and soy in one bunk, and, and the, the vitamins and protein added were in this other one. And then there was alfalfa. And what they found in that one was that the pigs just weren't really seeming to eat the vitamin supplement and they're like that's weird where's it coming from and the answer is the alfalfa so it's like when you added the when you enriched their feed it sort of turned off the desire to eat the green feed the good stuff the alfalfa when you didn't enrich it which is to say when they were just eating you know the corn by itself then this it's like this desire to eat alfalfa would spring up and they would go and eat it so I think the other thing that's troubling about this is that when we're adding this stuff to our food, it might literally be turning off this little switch that we, you know, to eat good stuff because we're getting it in kind of a trick, a shortcut way that is, uh, it's like
7: a cheat. You also talk about scurvy and the idea if those sailors had been given vitamins, like, would they never have craved fruit
8: yeah so this is really important because you know people if they recognize the term scurvy it'll be from like a history class where they you know we talked about british sailors they i mean they, they, horrible horrible experiences with scurvy they would get on a long ocean voyages they weren't getting enough vitamin c and everybody always talks about the fact that their gums swelled up and that's one thing that happened and they swelled up horrifically like their, their teeth would like s- like swing in their mouth the old wounds that had been healed for decades would open up again But the thing that the history books never talk about, but if you research it, is that one of the very first symptoms of scurvy was a craving for fruits and vegetables. And these sailors would have dreams of gorging on fruits and vegetables only to wake up and and they would start weeping when they realized it was a dream. They would look in the ocean and see these heads of coral and their minds would transform them into cabbages and oranges. So the sailors back then, the, the medical doctors back then had no clue and they came up with all these idiotic theories, but the sailors knew exactly what they needed. And when they would get into port, they would—I mean, there's a story of a British ship. It was called the Centurion. It washed up on Juan Fernandez Islands. I think it was like 1763 or something. They were just at awful scurvy, and they scrambled to shore, and they started eating moss and wild turnips. And they talked about how incredibly good they tasted. And of course, moss and wild turnips don't taste good if you're on all fours, you know, yanking them out of the ground. It's because their brains knew what they needed, and and their idea of what tasted good adjusted to what their body needed. That's how smart your brain is. And if you let things run properly, we are perfectly enabled to nourish ourselves. But boy, have we got things screwed up in the world we live in now.
7: Okay, friends, up next, we have a guest who is doing a true service for so many women. Dr. Sherry Ross is a celebrity gynecologist. Her books, Sheology and Sheology, the Sequel, are full of celebrity testimonials, including a foreword by Reese Witherspoon. And what she is doing is so important when it comes to education, surrounding the health of our sexual organs and fertility and all the things. I personally grew up in the Christian Bible Belt South where sex wasn't really talked about, and I didn't even go to a gynecologist growing up. So I really thank Dr. Sherry Ross for spreading awareness when it comes to women's sexual health. Her book covers everything you could ever want to know about your vagina and vulva, and it was really thrilling to sit down with her. So please enjoy this excerpt from my conversation with Dr. Sherry Ross. Well, speaking of eggs, how do you feel about egg freezing and who should consider that? When should women consider that? Is there a timeline for when it's too
2: early, too late? I feel like I should probably look into this. I love egg freezing. I, I just think it's the the best form of family planning that you can ever, ever have in your life. I mean, it's really taken family planning into a whole new conversation for egg freezing. and and we are seeing it, you know, so often now, which is which is great. Or at least women are talking about it. And I think it's just it's so, so, so important and it's part of birth control. I mean, it just has to be part of the conversation, you know, in your twenties, late twenties, it, it has to come up in the whole conversation of family planning. You know, it's like techno family planning, but it's, you know, the, the, the best age is going to be like 31 to 37, 38. But if you're talking about it in your late twenties, you know, it's, it's, you're creating that roadmap, right? You're, you're, you're talking about it. You're either in a relationship or you're working or, you know, women are very busy now. So thinking about having a family, it, it can be, you know, put on hold, which I think is really, really fantastic. And how long will the eggs last? I mean, technically, the freezing of eggs has really changed a lot in the last, In the last five years, it's it's elevated to even a better, you know, staying power, freezing power with these eggs and defrost, and you know whether it's ten to fifteen years, I'm not quite sure how long, but it's somewhere in that range, maybe even longer. And it just evolves, you know, the the infertility and freezing process evolves, and you know we're seeing companies like Facebook and Apple who are, you know, they're embracing and protecting a woman's choice to delay motherhood by paying for egg freezing. And I'm hoping that that's going to, you know, become more of a a common service that jobs offer women. I mean, I think that's just so forward thinking. So we're freezing eggs now without, you know, with, with, with really a lot of confidence. So it's really conversation in late twenties, definitely early thirties and, and really thinking about it. I mean, I think the biggest barrier is cost because it is about Fifteen thousand dollars to ten to you know twelve to fifteen thousand dollars to go through the entire process.
7: Is it something that is at all covered by insurance?
2: Well, we're you know we're not seeing it yet. Slowly, I mean, it's interesting. We're seeing IVF. Some some plans cover a cycle of IVF in vitro. I'm hoping we see it. You know, again, it's all about women and and making them equal, making them feel equal in the workplace. I mean, now women are our CEOs. We're, we have seats in the boardroom. You know, women have a presence. And I think it's going to be related to advocacy that we have to fight for a lot of things. Having your company or your insurance policy, you know, pay for a cycle or two of egg freezing, you would think would happen. I mean, they pay for Viagra right? You think that, you know, at some point our needs would, needs would also be met from the insurance angle.
7: Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Up next, we have a very recent guest. I know I just aired this episode, but it was so fabulous and so amazing. I couldn't not include it in our best of lineup. So my audio editors for the show, for example, they typically just send me back the finished file without any comments. My audio editor specifically commented on how much he loved this episode. That's how fun it is. AJ Jacobs is so Funny. He's a multiple New York Times bestseller, including books like The Know It All, The Year of Living Biblically, Drop Dead Healthy, One Man's Humble Quest for Bodily Perfection, Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journal, and the recently released The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. And we definitely got into that in this episode. If you want to listen to an episode that I think will make you see the world in different ways, appreciate the little things, contemplate not only the meaning of puzzles, but the meaning of life. Definitely check out my interview with AJ and enjoy this brief clip from our conversation. You talk about how puzzles, I mean, a theory could possibly solve the world because what is the one thing that can unify people of different...
4: Oh yeah, there was a great study where they took people from different sides of the political spectrum, so conservatives and liberals, and they had them do all these activities. And the one activity that, that united them was they all did crossword puzzles. And this, just this idea of having a common goal to work towards, they were able to bond over that. So yeah, there it is possible, Cro- you know, puzzles could save the world if we give them to Congress, I don't know, if, uh, or we give them to uh, both sides of the, uh, the the red states and the blue states, and we all work together. I mean, that really is all kidding aside. The idea of working together on a problem, uniting against a common threat, is one of the best ways to unify people. So I'm all for it. I and and regarding that cultural divide, like I have found it so helpful to try to think of that as a puzzle. So if I'm talking to someone from the other side of the political spectrum, I happen to be a you know a liberal. I you know I'm not not. Down the line, I have some differing views, but mostly liberal. So if I'm talking to someone who's a Trump supporter, instead of trying to see it as a as a fight, as a war of words, I try to see it as a puzzle. I try to say, well, let's try to solve together what do we really disagree on what evidence is there that could convince one of us that they might be wrong what uh, what is the crux of our difference well, what what can we do if we don't agree is there a way forward and all of these are sort of cooperative puzzles, mysteries. And I find it a much better way to engage with someone I disagree with. It's just more productive. It's more pleasant. You don't get, you know, my blood pressure doesn't go through the roof and I learn more and there's a better chance that I'm going to come to some sort of productive agreement. So that, yeah, that is my, when you're at the Thanksgiving table, and your uncle is saying crazy things that you don't like, just try to engage him as if, it's, as if he's a puzzle, and you're working on a puzzle together. What can you figure out?
7: Up next, friends, we have another legend in the health sphere. Max Lugavere is so well-known for his books on diet and brain health. I've been following him for years, so it was really a surreal moment to sit down with him. His multiple New York Times bestselling books include Genius Foods and The Genius Life, and of course, the recently released Genius Kitchen. He's super passionate about what he does. And I really enjoyed hearing his thoughts on some of the pro-vegan diet concepts for brain health. Things got a little spicy, and they got a little spicy on my Instagram afterwards as well. So I really think you guys will enjoy this clip with Max Lugavere. But I think my audience, one of the complaints, or I don't know if it's a complaint, but I'm always throwing different opinions at them with guests. I recently had on The Shurz Eyes, they run, I think... The Alzheimer's Institute at Loma Linda. I'm not sure exactly what the school is called. So they're all about a low-fat vegan diet. Their book is called "The Alzheimer's Solution." Do you have thoughts on that? The, the vegan approach?
0: Absolutely. There's zero evidence that a vegan diet is is promotive of brain health. There's lots of evidence to the contrary. We can, you know, we can we can take our sides when it comes to grass-fed beef, right? Like. I'm of the opinion that grass-fed beef is a is a health food and that it benefits brain health and I can back that up with, you know, with my my reasoning for that. But if you're not as a neurologist promoting the consumption of at least fish, then you are not sticking with the science. You have you have diverged from the science and you're now talking out of your butt essentially. Those two neurologists they they mean well and and I, I respect them, but their recommendations to me are are mind-blowing. Now, I'm not that familiar with them, so I don't know if they are promoting the consumption of fish or where they stand on that. But I will say that the, the vegan diet is not optimal from the standpoint of the brain. Far from it. And that, yeah, I just don't, you know, I think, it's, I think it is a disservice to people. I mean, there have been studies to show that in older adults, the consumption of choline is associated with a fairly dramatic risk reduction for Alzheimer's disease. Choline is most abundantly found in animal products, egg yolks, beef, foods like that. It's an incredibly important, conditionally essential nutrient that serves as the backbone for acetylcholine. You can, I mean, in the word acetylcholine, that choline at the end of it, the suffix is, we get that from our diets. We synthesize a small amount of it in our bodies, but We need to get choline from our diets. The Institute of Medicine, we have like a daily, like an adequate intake for it. It's very difficult to get from vegetables, even though it is found in vegetables in very small amounts. But yeah, a 30% risk reduction for people who consume the most choline. Choline is is most abundantly found in, in animal products. Animal products also provide a bevy of really important nutrients that are plug and play to our biology from zinc to vitamin B12 to preformed omega-3 fats to creatine. Creatine, many people are familiar with because of its association with physical performance and bodybuilding and sports and stuff like that. It's a vitally important nutrient that we need for good brain health. When they supplement vegans and vegetarians with with synthetic supplemental creatine, creatine, they see an improvement in their cognitive function. That is a non-trivial data point to me. And you don't see that improvement in cognitive function in omnivores. So omnivores are already getting their creatine needs from their diets, but vegans and vegetarians are not. Creatine is exclusively found in animal products. These are called carninutrients. And I mean, there's, there's carnitine, there's taurine. To me, it's unquestionable that an omnivorous diet is, is optimal. In fact, it is the omnivorous diet that created the human brain. There's no hunter-gatherer group throughout alive today, certainly, but in his, in the historical record that, ex, that subsisted exclusively on vegan diets. Veganism today is, it's a modern luxury. And I just think it's like, it's a very privileged thing to, to, to suggest. Now there are, there is evidence that just to be clear that, you know, meat consumption is associated with worse health outcomes, but That's because, I mean, you have to understand what's called healthy user bias. When you zoom out at the population level and you look at meat consumers in this country, they tend to consume more calories. They tend to eat more fast food. They tend to smoke. They tend to have other unhealthy lifestyle habits. And so that association is there. But when you control for those factors and you take people, there was just a study that was published that showed this, that when you control for diet quality, meat has no negative impact whatsoever. So I think that this is really important and yeah, it needs to be, needs to be understood.
7: Up next friends, we have a guest, which is truly a surreal moment to have had him on the show, not once, but twice. Stephen Gundry is the legend behind the plant paradox and all of those other paradoxes. He's the reason you know about things like lectins. I originally had him on the show for the energy paradox, and then I had him back on for his newest book, which is not a paradox book. It is unlocking the keto code, the revolutionary new science of keto that offers more benefits without deprivation. Dr. Gundry does some pretty interesting questioning on what we think ketosis is compared to what it actually may be. In particular, he talks about what he thinks is the true benefit behind the keto diet, which is mitochondrial uncoupling. He makes the argument that ketones are not the magical fuel source that we think that they might be and points out the problems with low-carb diets. I really think you guys will enjoy this conversation. So please welcome the legendary Dr. Stephen Gundry. So how are mitochondria sort of like a club and what is the role of mitochondrial uncoupling?
9: Mitochondria, if if we think of them as the coolest, hippest new club where people go to couple up, the club is the hottest, steamiest place. There's hormones raging. There's alcohol flowing. And there's everybody trying to get in. And there's pushing and shoving to get to the bar. And everybody wants to couple with everybody else. And it's a happening place. But the problem is things get out of control all the time in these clubs. And we've got bouncers, which we'll call antioxidants, and we've got doormen to, you know, control the velvet rope that lets people in. If things get out of control, when in the club there's only one way in, there's one, only one entrance, and there's actually a separate exit. And the object of the game is to get protons to couple with oxygen to and then leave the club via the revolving back door. And as they leave the club, they generate ATP. And that's how it's done. But a lot of times, other people electrons, who should be coupling with protons, want to couple with oxygen molecules. And these produce free radicals and reactive oxygen species, which are damaging. So there has to be a mechanism to keep things under control, to kind of pop off the pressure in this club, if you will. And lo and behold, It was discovered in the late 1970s that mitochondria have emergency exits in the club where when people get out of hand or when protons can't couple up with who they want to couple up with, they can leave via these emergency exits. And these emergency exits are controlled by what are called uncoupling exits proteins. And there's actually five of them. And so, these emergency exits serve as pop-off valves for mitochondria to avoid damage to mitochondria. And I like to use the example of a pressure cooker. Most of us have a pressure cooker. And everybody knows there's a little pop-off valve or release valve that the steam escapes whenever the pressure gets too high. Because if it kept getting higher, you'd Explode the pressure cooker, which my mother did when I was growing up. It was very exciting. So, we have release valves in mitochondria. And it turns out that, lo and behold, ketones actually open the release valves on mitochondria. And they not only open the release valves of mitochondria to take the pressure off the work of mitochondria. But in the same signaling capacity, they tell mitochondria to divide and make more of themselves to handle the workload. It's kind of like we could hook one dog up to a dog sled, and that dog could pull the dog sled, but the dog would be doing a lot of work. On the other hand, if we hook six dogs to the dog sled, the six dogs can do the work of one dog without much effort except here's the punchline, those six dogs are going to eat a lot more food than the one dog did. And that's the beauty of uncoupling mitochondria. Each one of them has to do less work, but you make more mitochondria, which are actually going to use more fuel, like fat. So Fascinatingly, the more you uncouple mitochondria, the more you release this pressure valve, the more weight you lose and the healthier your mitochondria get. Yay!
7: Okay, friends, up next, we have a guest that I was so, so excited about. The instant Dr. Morgan Levine's people reached out to me about her coming on the show, I was an immediate yes. I was so obsessed with her work. I've been listening to her on many podcasts, like Dr. Peter Atiyah. She's doing incredible work with the science of longevity, which, as you know, is one of my favorite topics. This episode was definitely a deep, deep dive into the factors that affect aging and the nitty-gritty of genes and genetics and cellular pathways and all of the things... If you want to be inspired and motivated about taking charge of your true biological age, this is the conversation for you. So please enjoy this clip from my conversation with Dr. Morgan Levine for her new book, True Age, Cutting Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. I want to measure my biological age. So how did you develop the system that you have for measuring biological age? What is it actually measuring?
10: Yeah, so I've developed, I've worked on a few different kinds of systems. So the one that actually started about a decade ago was just, you can measure or try and estimate biological age just from the normal types of lab tests that you would get done at your annual physical. So things like cholesterol and different inflammatory markers like CRP, HbA1c or glucose, and these, and then a bunch of things to do with cell counts. And we actually developed a way that you can combine those into a single kind of aging profile or biological age score, or we often call this your phenotypic age score, and show that that is a better predictor of risk of disease or mortality risk than your chronological age. So that gives you kind of a whole person, kind of systemic biological age, but actually What my lab is more interested in are these molecular measures of biological age. And usually what we use is epigenetic data. So people may, maybe David, David Sinclair, if he was on, talked about the epigenetic clock. So these are measures that use something called DNA methylation. So it's not changes to your DNA sequence. So you still A, C, G, and T. You're not changing that. But what you're changing is you have these chemical kind of tags that can happen at specific sites throughout your genome that we call CPGs, where you have a C right next to a G. And this just changes kind of the accessibility of that part of your DNA. So the interesting thing to think about is all of the cells in your body have the exact same DNA, but clearly they exhibit very different phenotypes. So your skin cell does not act or look the same as your brain cells or your neurons. And what gives it their kind of phenotype is the epigenome. So it tells the skin cell you use, this part of the genome, these are the protein products that you can derive, whereas your brain cell will use different parts of the genome. And this is dictated by turning on or off certain parts using these kind of epigenetic modifications. The interesting thing is that the epigenome gets dysregulated. We think dysregulated, but it definitely changes with aging. And we can actually look at this profile to say, oh, you've had kind of this degree of drift or change that might be indicative of someone or a cell or a tissue that is of some kind of chronological age.
7: Okay. Wow. Sorry, That was a lot. No, no, no. I love it. I love it. So some questions about the tests. Actually, when I was talking to James, he was saying that they use the phenotypic age in a lot of their trials to see if what they're doing is effective. So that was super cool. So that first type that with the nine biomarkers to clarify, what are some examples of those biomarkers of the nine?
10: Yeah. So for that one, you have things from your CBC. So your cell blood count. So things like what white blood cell percentage, something called red cell distribution width, which is just how wide your the how how much variance there is in the width of your red blood cells so a bunch of these kind of little measures you have things that map onto kidney function so creatinine alkaline phosphatase you have liver function and then you have fasting glucose and you have oh this is testing my actually memory albumins in there i should remember all these yeah, I have to go back and look at it exactly. I found one of the ones
7: online and was taking it, but then I realized I wasn't sure. I don't think I had all the data I needed to fill it out correctly because then I did it and it gave me my, my result. And I think it basically said I was like dead. So I was like, I don't think
10: I put in the right numbers. <laughs> oh, so the other, yeah. So that's the other thing people need to pay attention to are the units. So the other thing is if you, if the lab you did your test at in different units than that one, you have to actually convert them or it'll give you some crazy insane number. It said, Yeah, I was like, okay, that's <laughs> is not correct. That doesn't sound like it was correct. Oh, CRP is another one in there. C reactive protein, which is it needed a percent, and the data I had was not in a percent. And
7: I was like, I don't know how to convert this to clarify. So for that test, is that comparing just two other people with similar biomarkers or is it comparing to an in-between marker like a methylation status or something?
10: Yeah, so that one is comparing to other people. So actually it was developed using a study called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Study and Haynes, which is supposed to be for the U.S. nationally representative. So it should represent all different types of people within the population net about the percentages that they exist in the population. And so but the issue, again, like before, was that we have to use a population from the eight, early 80s in order to actually be able to train the test because we need mortality f- follow-up. We need to know who lives, how long they live. So we need a long kind of follow-up time. So that one is saying, compared to the average United States population in the 80s, this is how old you your profile looks. You said the population
7: in the 80s actually lived shorter than today.
10: Yes. So most people will actually score lower than their chronological age on that test. So it actually under kind of predicts age.
7: So even though they lived shorter, did they not have lower rates of chronic disease as well?
10: It depends. Some chronic diseases, there were higher rates. So I think we're doing better in certain cancers, uh, mostly probably because of earlier screening or better screening. But yeah, I think the one thing that people have actually shown is our life expectancy has increased a lot, but our health span hasn't increased quite as much. So we're, we're actually just keeping people alive who are sicker longer. But we actually compared biological age between that population and more current populations. And we also find that people today do at least in terms of these parameters, look younger.
7: Oh, we have a lower
10: biological
7: age now as well?
10: Yeah. So the average person today has a lower biological age than the average person then. We've also looked at within different groups. So actually, the biggest difference tends to be older people. So I forget what the age cutoff was, but I think for people in their 70s, they're even younger biologically than people in their 70s back in the 80s.
7: anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends, and I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing, and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ionlayer, that's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R, and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com/ionlayer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with 6 patches. Totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels and I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com/ionlayer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Up next, we have a super fun guest who my audience had been begging me to have on the show for honestly years. Even before I launched this show and was asking for recommendations, I would get requests for Ari Witten. He's pretty well known for his book, The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy, and his newest book is called Eat for Energy. How to Beat Fatigue, Supercharge Your Mitochondria, and Unlock All-Day Energy. And it is a deep, deep dive into the mitochondria, as well as how everything that we put in our mouth, including food and supplements, affect it. So without further ado, please enjoy this brief clip from our conversation.
11: That Yeah, that's an interesting relationship there. I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a pretty ugly history around some of this in terms of the how the medical profession has treated women in some instances, hysteria, of course, you know, sort of basically going, Hey, women are these, you know, very strange, illogical creatures sometimes. And and they act in these crazy ways that we men can't understand. And maybe it's coming from their uterus. Let's cut out their uterus and see if that solves the problem. You know, so there's that. And then with chronic fatigue syndrome for a long time, And this is partly due to limitations in testing technologies for a long time. But basically, you you could run a blood test on people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And the vast majority of the time, their markers will come back perfectly normal. Based on that, a lot of these doctors concluded, hey, there's nothing actually physiologically wrong with you. This is all in your head. And so they were prescribed antidepressants and basically treated like hypochondriacs and and treated like it was all psychosomatic. And that of course is very wrong. We now know chronic fatigue syndrome is in fact a very real condition and we have sophisticated enough testing that we've established many, many different biochemical abnormalities in people with chronic fatigue syndrome.
7: Questions about that actually, just to get some definitions here clearly has a long history, like we just discussed, of not seeming like a credible disease or condition. And you just mentioned the metabolites, which you mentioned in the book, there being like 600 or so metabolites related to chronic fatigue. So stepping back, what is it exactly?
11: Well, you know, this is also interesting because despite the fact that, as I just said, we have a number of metabolites that have been linked To chronic fatigue syndrome there is actually still no definitive test single test that you can do that says if you you know if you test positive on this particular marker these two markers then that means you have chronic fatigue syndrome so it's still a diagnosis that's largely based on symptoms and basically the symptoms are severe debilitating levels of fatigue combined with something called Post exertional malaise, which means that for a day or two or three following even brief bouts of physical activity, even maybe moderately strenuous physical activity, someone might be pretty wiped out. They might be, ex- you know, in a, an extreme amount of soreness and pain and severe fatigue and brain fog and things like that. So that symptom is to a large extent, kind of diagnostic for chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, having said all that, I really don't focus specifically on chronic fatigue syndrome specifically for a couple reasons. One is there's a legal aspect to it. I don't want to talk about medical conditions because it can get me legally into hot water if it, it is if if it's implied that I'm saying, hey, I, here's these recommendations I'm making which can treat this specific medical condition. Now, so, so for that reason, I take things out of the realm of chronic fatigue syndrome and talk purely about fatigue or chronic fatigue, which are not medical diagnoses, but a description of low levels of energy. The second reason, even more important than that is that chronic fatigue syndrome really just represents the extreme end of that spectrum of how debilitated someone can become as a result of low energy levels. But this is not an on-off switch. It's not like, oh, you either have amazing high energy levels bouncing off the walls with energy like a little kid, or you're debilitated with chronic fatigue syndrome. There's a uh, hundred degrees of gray gray areas in between those two ends of the, the extremes. And Most people, most adults are, you know, somewhere in the middle, if not maybe slightly in the direction of, or moderately in the direction of chronic fatigue without necessarily meeting the diagnostic criteria of chronic fatigue syndrome and having this severe post-exertional malaise, but they have poor energy levels relative to what they had when they were in their
5: youth.
7: Okay, friends, as we near the end of this episode, we can't not include one of the biggest legends of all time, the author of the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1990s. Yes, I am talking about John Gray, the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and a million other books as well. He is such an energetic pleasure. I actually had him on for two episodes. There was just that much to talk about. John has really fascinating revelations when it comes to male and female relations. So please enjoy this clip from my conversation with John Gray.
3: You know, it's so easy to unconditionally love your kids. They're you. (laughs) So they're a cute version of you and a little version you can control them. So I come home and they will run at me, daddy, 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 you know, and then Bonnie would complain to me, the kids only listen to me and not her. Well, I changed that very quickly. They come and see me. And the first thing I will say is, where's your mother? And after a while, they say, mom's here, mom's there, because I'm going to go to her first. I'll carry them, but I'm going to go to her first. So they see me prioritizing her. The women today need more respect. And that's what they're trying to get. They just don't know how to get it, how to communicate it, how to talk to men to get it. But and even when you read gender books, they all say men need more respect. You do not need to respect. We all need respect. But what is the real, what we need more of, what men need more of is to feel successful to feel appreciated for what they do, to be accepted for not being perfect, to be trusted that they're doing their best. All of those qualities of trust, acceptance, and appreciation bump up testosterone. Admiration pumps up testosterone. Acknowledgement bumps up testosterone. This is our doing side. Then we have our being side, which wants to be heard, seen, valued as a good person, as a loving person, as a vulnerable person, and to be protected And the protection women need today is based upon getting what they need. They need to be able to open up and be protected from some guy who says, well, that's stupid. Or why would you feel that? Or why are you telling me that? Or you're overreacting to the situation. Let's all just wake up to mention, never say you're overreacting. Instead, say, help me understand that better. Tell me more. What else? And don't react as a man knowing she needs to talk to raise her estrogen because if she needs to talk and raise her estrogen, she's in a stress state and anything you say is not going to help other than asking questions. So these are like new skills that we have, you know, even like dating skills. Women all been taught by their mothers, basically, if you want somebody to be interested in you, be interested in them. No, don't be interested in him. And if ever you're dating somebody and you're more interested in him than he's interested in you, forget it. Not going to work out. Most cases, particularly if you have a pattern of men who don't call back and men who don't commit, whatever, it's because you were giving too much. Every woman gives too much. She tries to please the man. Your job is to learn how to get a guy to please you. Give less, get more, will raise your estrogen. Then you actually walk around in a state of gratitude and appreciation and trust that you can get what you need. But when you're out of balance, you tend to be too demanding. See, any, both men and women, when your estrogen levels and testosterone are not in balance, we demand more than what life gives us. And then we want to change somebody else. Then we use negative emotions to intimidate others, to guilt others, to threaten others in order to get what we want. We have to recognize we want negative emotions. We don't suppress them, particularly if you're a woman. If a man and I have them, I take time to rebuild my testosterone. Then if I still have them, I look at what they are in order to analyze them the way Freud would do is what is the thinking that's off? The only time you have negative emotions is when you're not thinking aligned with your higher self. So emotions serve a great purpose for me. You know, I get upset about something, then I go, okay, why am I upset? Clearly, something I didn't know I really wanted is not showing up for me, and now I need to become aware that I'm not getting what I want. My thinking around that always has to do with, unless I change the outer world, I can't get what I want, instead of changing myself to get what I want. And if you're focusing on changing yourself to get what you want, you're not upset with anybody. But the way you know you need to change your thinking is you get upset with somebody and you analyze that and you look at it. If you do that as a man through analysis, you will raise testosterone and have better relationships. If you're a woman, you don't focus on the analysis first because that's testosterone producing. Just simply what happened and how you feel and what's going on and what else you feel and don't stop at what you feel go to what emotion is linked to what you feel. So this is a whole new thought for people, which is it's it's Emotional Intelligence 3.0 or something.
7: Up next, we have a guest that I have been a fan of for years, and this was his second appearance on the show. I had the honor of having Dr. David Perlmutter back on the show for his book, Drop Acid. And what I loved about this book is that he is talking about something that nobody is talking about, which is the role of uric acid. As the potential root cause of metabolic syndrome. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Perlmutter. One other big topic to maybe tackle. So speaking to the context of everything and how how there's nuance to all of this, what do you think is the role of gender when it comes to uric acid? I was reading about the the correlations and oftentimes the like with the all-cause mortality, some of those would disappear when It would just be um, found for men, for example. And you talked about the role of alcohol and how it correlates to uric acid and that it didn't apply to women and wine. Like why? Why is that happening? Why are women maybe not experiencing as many of the negative effects as men?
12: It's a great question. And there's a fairly straightforward explanation for that. And that is that estrogen helps the kidney release uric acid into the urine. So... Women by and large have lower uric acid levels in comparison to men, and that goes away after menopause. So, you know, that that's something and it, it actually does tend to explain a lot. And you know, getting back to the alcohol, I just want to make sure that your listeners understand what the the data is telling us about that. And these are, you know, evaluation of tens of thousands of people who complete what is called a food frequency questionnaire, in other words, evaluating what people eat over a period of time, and then looking at various blood markers of whatever you want to measure. In the case of uric acid, what has been noted is that women who consume wine, their wine consumption is associated with a lower uric acid level. In men, they don't really have much change in their uric acid level when compared to wine consumption. Hard liquor in men and women, more so in men, uh, is associated with an increased level of uric acid. But by far and away, the worst player is beer. Beer has alcohol and also has purines, again, from the brewer's yeast. So that's very, very cellular, lots of nucleic material broken down into purines. What is that doing? Dramatically raising uh, uric acid and telling the body, make fat. So there's very good rationale for understanding where the beer belly is coming from. The beer belly is a manifestation of activating an alarm system in the body, telling it to make and store fat very quickly to prepare for a time of caloric scarcity when you may not have any food. And, you know, one other area I just want to unpack briefly because I think it's really important, and that is that our bodies actually make fructose. And that's, <laughs> in, the, in the context of survival, that's a great thing, right? That uh, you could activate a mechanism in your body such that it would make more fructose so you could make body fat and survive. But these days, maybe it's not the best news. And you might then ask, well, what is causing our bodies to make fructose? If it's such a bad thing these days, what are we doing to make that happen? It turns out that one of the most powerful influences on the pathway to make and it's called the polyol pathway P O L Y O L the one of the most important influence is when the body feels as if it's dehydrated when it's dehydrated or feels it's dehydrated an enzyme is activated called aldose reductase aldolase reductase aldose reductase sorry and aldose is the sugar and aldose reductase is involved in converting glucose, blood sugar into fructose. And that'll be on the quiz. So everybody has to remember that. Anyway, the body thinks it's dehydrated. It makes more fructose. How does the body think it's dehydrated? It does so because the body is very sensitive to sodium levels. When you get dehydrated, your sodium level goes way up. You see somebody in the emergency room who's really dehydrated, their sodium level is sky high and you have to very judiciously bring it down by giving them an IV slowly that is low in sodium. So that's the body sensor that's telling it, that it's telling the body that we can't find water, sodium goes up. Well, it turns out that you can raise your sodium just by eating a bag of chips, just by eating you know a lot of added salt and parking yourself in front of the playoffs, in front of TV, eating a bag of pretzels with salt. Your sodium level is going to go up and immediately you're going to activate the conversion of glucose into fructose, uric acids produced, and guess what? You make body fat. You become insulin resistant. And You know, for a long time, we've known that people on a higher salt diet have a dramatic increased risk for becoming obese, a dramatic increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And we've certainly known the hypertension part of that story for a very long time, but we didn't understand the mechanism.
7: Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat All right, now back to the show. Okay, friends, one of the things I love is bringing on people of all different perspectives onto this show. So as you guys know, I love bringing on people who are really well known in the vegan and plant-based sphere. Simon Hill is a treasure. He is one of the most open-minded, kind, unbiased figures that I have met in the vegan sphere. And I'm not saying that the vegan sphere is necessarily biased. I just think on the extreme sides of things like carnivore versus vegan, for example, people can get a little bit wrapped up in their perspective. What I love about Simon Hill is that he is really comprehensive and nuanced and very open to people doing their own manifestations of a plant-based diet. Once I had him on, I immediately booked him for a part two Q&A. So look for that in 2023. And in the meantime, please enjoy this clip with Simon Hill for his book, The Proof is in the Plants. Actually, I'm glad you brought up the broccoli because that is something that the carnivore sphere people will say a lot as an example, they'll say that, or as quote evidence. They'll say that, you know, all kids basically don't like green vegetables and it's not until later. So they say it's like we accustom ourselves to this taste and that's due to the anti-nutrients and such and broccoli. Where do you fall on plant anti-nutrients?
13: There are certain foods if overdone, for example, if you consume too much spinach, you could end up with kidney stones. You'd have to consume a lot though. A lot of this comes down to exposure and you know, for example, lectins is one that gets thrown up a lot, right?
7: I've had Dr. Gundry on the show twice.
13: Yeah. So how should I phrase this? I think Dr. Gundry has some, some really great things to say. So I don't want to come across as kind of just having a go at him generally. We would disagree on lectins a bit though. And where, where I think he puts a lot of his emphasis is on the, the preclinical mechanistic data, so what's, what happens if you put lectins you know, into a cell that's been removed from the body in a petri dish kind of thing? That level of evidence we need to be thinking about very critically. And there's a few reasons for that. I, went, I mentioned how important exposure is before, whenever we're looking at something. If, if we're talking about whether a food is healthy or not, critical to that is how much are we being exposed to. And... In this mechanistic level of science, what's really easy to do is to expose a cell to something like lectins at a level that it would never be exposed to in the human body through a human diet. So I could expose these cells to to an uh, the amount of, of lectins, you know, magnitudes higher than what you would ever be exposed to through eating legumes, for example. And we see that. We see You know, many, many mechanistic studies that show that lectins could be problematic, the exposure level is astronomical. Now, what I like to explain to people here is that you can have a compound like lectins or any compound that can be healthy at a certain level of exposure, but then it can also be harmful at a certain level of exposure. Let's take oxygen for an example. So, I think that most of us would agree. Breathing in air that contains oxygen is a good thing. We require it. It sustains us, right? It's critical to the production of, of energy and the maintenance of life. But if I was to give you 100% oxygen, you would soon pass out and eventually you would die. So the oxygen concentration in air, I think, is 21%, maybe 26 but if I expose you to 100% oxygen, it becomes deleterious. That same compound that's healthy for us, ramped up at a certain exposure level, becomes harmful. Now, with that in mind, the fact that 100% oxygen is harmful to us, none of us are going around saying, don't breathe air, are we? <laughs> we, we, we the common sense approach is, okay, 100% oxygen is bad, but 21% in air in, in air. Is beneficial for us. I'm gonna to breathe today. Now, with lectins, so we see this extreme exposure in, in mechanistic petri level science, can cause some deleterious effects to cells, can increase you know, markers of inflammation, etc. Now, what about in humans? well if we look at population data and you look at populations who are consuming foods that contain lectins and and sure they're they're cooking them and and soaking you know soak beans and and cook them which does remove or minimize reduce some of the lectins but there's still lectins in these foods these these people have very good health outcomes and if lectins were as kind of poisonous as as they're often portrayed to be then we, we should expect to see these cultures and populations who, who eat a lot of lectin-containing foods, we should expect to see higher incidence of autoimmune conditions or conditions related to gut barrier breakdown. We should expect to see poorer health, but in fact, we see the opposite. So I think that, that alarm bells go off for me when, when a lot of this is derived from mechanistic data where there is a very, very extreme exposure amount. And I I think we just need to be careful over-extrapolating from that to, to human health.
7: Okay, friends, what better way to end our best of part two episode for 2022 than with a figure who is one of the key reasons I am doing what I am doing today? I've been following Mark Sisson for years. When I first started doing paleo, after Rob Wolf, Mark Sisson with Mark's Daily Apple was one of the go to resources informing my journey. He's also the creator of Primal Kitchen. I was so nervous to interview Mark because he is that much of a legend and it was such an honor to sit down with him. I'd interviewed his friends like L. Russ and Brad Kearns, but not the legend himself. This was really an incredible, inspiring conversation and a perfect way to end our best of 2022. Okay, I have some follow-up questions from that. One, so you're mentioning this concept of play. Was play something that... Hunter gatherers would do so. It sounds like with endurance sports, that's something that, from an evolutionary perspective, we would have never engaged in as a thing.
5: No, hundred percent right. No, it would be such a waste of energy, precious, you know, human energy to think about training with a mindset of of going to the well every day or or five days a week. So our ancestors. So to answer your first question, yes, our ancestors and and. Our, our, you know, ape predecessors, play is a huge factor in development and growth, and and humans are wired to play throughout their entire life, not just as children. I mean, we hear th- we hear this sort of mantra in child development about kids are you s- you're supposed to let them play and experiment and fall down and, you know, and 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 they develop social skills in addition to physical skills. Certainly, it wires the brain for planning. And as an ancestral human being, that includes planning how to hunt an animal that you're going to eat. So, a lot of our ancestors, we hear these stories about the hunters tracking and and running after the beast for, you know, two hours before they kill it. Well, it's not all running. It's Some of it's walking. Some of it's hiding and crouching. Some of it is, you know, skipping from one hiding stone to the next. It's it's not a linear all-out run at max capacity for two hours. It was sort of a, a game in and of itself. The hunt became became a game as much as anything else. A lot of the early, you know, tribal events were based around games that that men and women and children would play, all of which helped with social skills, with learning, with development, with with enjoyment of life, with you know, breaking the monotony of an otherwise tedious existence, et cetera, et cetera. So so yes, play is is an integral part of humans. And it's the reason that it's one of the 10 primal blueprint laws, that I want everybody to play as often and as much as they can. Back to my own experience, I I realized that throughout much of my endurance career, I wasn't playing much. I couldn't really take a chance on playing a pickup basketball game or even a pickup baseball game for fear of pulling a hamstring or twisting an ankle. I couldn't ski for the same reasons. So there was not a lot of play in, in my life for that 15-year period.
7: Okay, friends, that is it. The end of our first Best of Recap episode for 2022. Definitely let me know what you guys think of this. Should I do it every year? Who were your favorite guests? You can let me know in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life, or on my Instagram. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. And next week, we will start off with the first new guest of 2023, and I wish everybody a beautiful year.
6: Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information,